Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Breeding the Honeybee. I'm Brent Nixon and today I'm going to be speaking with Ray Butler. Ray is a VSH, that's Varroa Sensitive Hygiene Specialist Queen Breeder from New Zealand. She operates the Bee Smart Breeding Program which produces VSH bees. Ray has spent some time with the VSH Breeding Program in Baton Rouge, Arista Bee Research in the Netherlands and the Bee Inform Partnership based at Maryland University. Ray, welcome to the show. How are you today? Kia ora, Brent. R- really good, thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm really good, thanks. So, tell us uh, what it's like there in New Zealand at the moment. Uh, well, um, spring is just springing into action, and so um, I, I sort of spent the winter time sort of going over a lot of my results and coming um, coming up with some action plans, and now thought I had plenty of time to get ready for the spring and all of a sudden it's here and I'm running around like a hen with his head chopped off basically but yeah busy we had a good and the bees are looking really really good considering we had such a wet winter Mm, fantastic and Mm. so you you got into beekeeping I believe it was in Russia that you started doing some beekeeping stuff is that right well I did I didn't exactly go beekeeping in Russia but I was introduced to um, the concept of beekeeping when I was there. I got some black market tickets um, in Hungary for the Trans-Siberian train and when we were on it uh, we were in the uh, cabin with some Russian scientists and there was one one of the women there, she couldn't speak any English but we sort of sat shoulder to shoulder the whole six days. And every day she'd pull out um, fruit leathers or preservatives or pickles or something and she'd tell us what they were and then five o'clock every night we'd drink vodka and then one of the last days she pulled out a brown bottle and they told me that it was something from a beehive lid that you roll it up and soak it in um, alcohol and it was good for whitening your teeth, good for sore stomachs, good for wounds and good for sore throats and I was like oh yeah okay didn't know at that stage what what she was showing me and or even what a beehive was basically she gave us my partner at the time and I a gold spoon and said and that was for our for our first child so we went off on our merry way and about five months later I found I was pregnant and I came home had my son and then six months later while I was uh, at home with him, I saw a beekeeping course, and that got my interest up. So I pretty much went and did a, a beekeeping diploma at Rangiora Training Institute. And at the same time, when you're doing the training, um, you went and worked with other commercial beekeepers. And I worked in with um, Trevor Catamol, um, and he was a queen breeder. For they run about three thousand hives. So that's how I first learnt queen rearing basically and the interesting thing was what she had showed me Linda's Clarkson that was taking the beekeeping course she was an ex-nurse so of course we decided to scrape all the wax off the beehive lids and put it into vodka because that's all I was drinking and 
tested it out on some of the students when they had a sore throat, and of course they said it worked, but I wasn't too sure whether it was the vodka or whatever was in it. And then with her nursing background, we worked out we could use uh, ethyl alcohol, and at that time, we Convita wasn't even making, it was propolis tincture that introduced me to, and at that time, um, we, uh, I think I was contacted people in Poland uh, to find out what it was but and then I contacted Convita um, they weren't making it but yeah that was our my first intro- introduction to beekeeping basically oh fantastic and so when you tried yeah. to create it yourself was it was it the same did it have the same flavor uh, once no it was more no no oh once we used ethyl alcohol it it did that really brought out the um, the propolis but and it was a bit tangy. But I've always had a bit of a thing about propolis from now on. I'm always smearing it on my teeth and forget it was on and walk into a dairy or something to buy <laughs> to buy my lunch. Oh, that's excellent. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was a completely different consistency, really. Yep. Ah, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> so we were talking before about the history of Varroa in New Zealand. Um, do you want to tell us a yeah. little bit about when? You you were aware of it before it came to New Zealand and you were part of a program that was preparing for it. Do you want to tell us a story about that and up to up until when it got there? Oh, yes. Uh, I've always we always were aware that um eventually New Zealand would get Varroa. I um, mean it's just the inevitability. So we formed a Varroa um pest management strategy. So it was a a group of us uh, here in Canterbury, we came up with a levy and we then worked with Plant and Food, Mark Goodwin and Michelle Taylor, and we came up with a plan of eradication. Uh, So we experimented, I was in North Canterbury at the time, so we went to the area where I was, we cleared out all the commercial hives away from the area. It was a little bit more isolated than um, most of the other Canterbury areas. We notified all the other beekeepers, of course, and we all moved our hives. Then we experimented with um, poison for and sugar syrup, and we were and working out dosages. So we did. I think we did leave some hives behind just to see whether it worked, because we were wanting to kill all the ferals and everything. So the first, I think the first time it didn't work, um, so then we had to up the dosage, uh, then we found that it did work and every, we, the system was put in place, it was accepted by MAF at the time and the beekeeping industry that we had a strategy plan for eradication of Varroa arrived. Uh, so when it did arrive in 2000, it was unfortunately in the centre of the North Island and it was not wasn't contained so sadly they decided that it was too too far spread as well as that I'm not you know don't quote me on all the politics this is just my take of what had actually occurred the other thing was we as the committee we thought we'd uh, okayed with MAF and everybody the use of the poison to kill the bees but unfortunately there was a loophole and it uh, was deemed not approved for use for the eradication so then 
the manufacturer decided he didn't want it to be used, they didn't want it to be known to be killing bees, so the whole pin was pulled on the that sort of eradication plan. And then when, so the North Island um, had it for a few years, and then when it got down to the South Island, the north of the South Island, there was a plan that they formulated saying that, well, how about we sell our, our infested hives to the North Island, and then instead, and that means we didn't have to destroy the bees, but that wasn't accepted either. That was probably one of those, as I said to you, one of those beekeepers and, you know, initiatives that was it sounded like a good idea but probably the logistics of it would have been a nightmare but you know that was just you get into that frenzy of you know like okay what can we do what can we do but yeah unfortunately none of them did you know no, were taken up and we did all eventually get varroa mm-hmm. and i believe it took about four years to get from the north part of the island all the way down to the southern part is that correct yeah, yeah, I think uh, it was up to about six. Yeah, to six for the whole, but four to the top of the north. Yeah, okay. Actually, yeah, actually might have been longer. I know I did do a, a PowerPoint on it, but yeah, don't quote me on that. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, it did take about yeah six years right. to get down. Mm-hmm. So I was speaking with John Berry and he was telling me that the VSH genetics program was established and the genes were actually taken from bees that were actually in New Zealand at the time. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Michelle Taylor and Mark Goodwin, they they had a three-year funding to look at all the bee population throughout New Zealand and to see if they could find the VSH trait in the New Zealand bee population. And yes, they did, um, because of course, VSH is an additive trait, so it's only the bees actually only bring it out to the fore once you've got varroa. So yeah, they that, that three-year plan they they did find that they could, and they could breed with it. So they had an, uh, Mercury Island was an isolated island, so they used that to as uh, as a closed put bees on the island and used that as a um, closed breeding population there to build up the VSH. Mm. Okay. So yes, that was successful. Yeah, yeah, excellent. So that program, was that a government initiative? Yes, yeah, yeah. So that was funded um, by the government. So then when the funding ran out, unfortunately, um, they didn't carry on getting it funded. So then they did a tech transfer for the... Um, for the for the bees, and I was involved in that up in uh, Nelson Honey, up in Nelson, and so we received some queens and better bees down in Otago. They got some semen, so it was distributed around. And then in Nelson, we of course then it was deemed a breeding program and in New Zealand I'm not sure about Australia but uh, New Zealand breeding programs can't get funding they don't deem you know I don't think they the powers to be don't appreciate that um, bee breeding is completely different to cow and you know, cattle and sheep breeding so we got some we did get some funding uh, to look at the cries 
cryopreservation of semen and looking at uh, the VSH, the hemolymph of the bee, I think it was. And But unfortunately, uh, breeding programs, it's really, really time-consuming to do the VSH, and unfortunately, the breeding program did fold after a couple of years and then I think yeah better bees haven't really uh, they they did do a little bit with the VSH as well but I think they found the same it's very time consuming <coughs> excuse me and at the time too VSH is very new even though it's been going on for you know being studied over around the world um, it was very easy for beekeepers you know there wasn't a demand for it because there wasn't enough understanding, I feel. So when the VSH program folded, I moved up uh, down here to Ashburton and thought, well, it's um, I've got all this knowledge um, and know-how, so I decided to find see if I could find it in the bee population down here in Canterbury. And I've been doing that for six years, and it's taken me quite a while to build it up, but... Um, I have found the VSH and um, this year is hopefully will be my turning point to the breeding program. Excellent. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how you maintain the VSH gene in your own population? Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's um, interesting because I think I'm the only one in New Zealand that's really excited about finding Varroa. Mm-hmm. Oh, excuse me a minute. <coughs> Um, what, cause what I have to do is first, I might monitor all my hives. Now, when, before we got, um, uh, Varroa in New Zealand, everybody always overseas, they said, monitor, monitor, monitor. That was always the mantra. Now it's really important, you know, even as Australia will know, cause you, even if you haven't got Varroa, you have to monitor just, you know, to find out whether you have had an incursion uh so what i do is i um select for my breeders i uh in the spring i go around and i might monitor all my hives and well now i know which ones have daughters of you know previous breeders but right at the start i had to go around and monitor all my hives regularly every three weeks for the mite levels and uh with the MPG, the mite population growth, you can sort of, over two two months in the spring, get an indication of what what bee colonies are actually keeping very, very low mite levels. Like you take a sample of 300 bees and if the sample of three mites per 300 bees was three or less, for the, or zero was perfect for, for at least two months, then I know that there's sort of that indicates that something there is some sort of resistance possibly in that hive, and you've got to realise the mite population growth that could be like varroa resistance is um, bees that actually interrupt the fitness of the varroa. There's varroa tolerance, which is um, they interrupt the effects of varroa. So I'm looking for like varroa resistance and varroa resistance could be anything from grooming or shorter brood nest cycles or uh, 
that could be SMR, suppressed mite reproduction, or VSH. So that's my first indication that the okay, this hive is doing something. So and my one is like I'm really interested in VSH. So so that's maintaining varroa. But of course, how can I prove that it doesn't? You know that it is good with uh, it does have the VSH. Uh, so therefore, when I'm monitoring, I also keep an eye on what hives have high levels. So then I take, set aside hives that are maintaining a high level of varroa, and I also have to make sure they don't collapse. And I have to be, put them in the most isolated area that I can, because I don't really want to infect my neighbours as well. So I have to maintain them at a certain level. So then I get... The hives, I, I also looking at the brood, like I look for uh, uncapped purple-eyed uh, brood, you know, uh, not, if you, do you know what, you know, when wax moth burrows through the the brood nest and you can see that there's lines of uncapped purple-eye, have you noticed that? I have, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you don't confuse it with that, but you're looking for uncapped purple wise because what the bees are doing they're going into the um, pupae at a certain age and they're actually uncapping for, and pulling out that pupae and I'm looking for body half body parts in there it's kind of I'm looking for signs of hygiene basically and then so then with those ones and they've also got to pass the other tests they've got to pass uh, honey reserves they've got a temperament uh, good brood patterns and good bee numbers and everything and then I once I've decided which ones I want to test for VSH I then take uncapped frames of uh, brood from those certain hives pop them into what I call the varroa towers and then I wait for the larvae to be capped and then, and then I take it out and I do my first assessment so I have to look at 200 cells at, at a certain age and I uncap them and just to see what the infestation rate is from around those 200 cells. So I'll get an infestation rate. Of course I've killed that larvae but I have to make sure there's enough larvae at that same age, that same cohort and put it back into the parent hive and then I wait about a week and then I pull out the same frame again and look at the same cohort of pupae now because it's evolved and I count, do varroa counts and see whether the infestation rate of the next 200 has gone down or and I also look at the mite dynamics. I see whether there's been any interrupted the reproduction system of the mites. I just assess whether it's been interrupted or not uh, meaning and I look for recapping so and then I do some calculations from that to get a VSH rating mm-hmm. so it's very labour intense mm, yeah. I love doing it but it does distract me from you know other aspects of my um, business as well mm-hmm. so yeah so that's hence why it's taken so long uh, to sort of evolve basically it was just um i mean i feel like i'm at the level now that you know um i'm getting the attention of you know commercial beekeepers now and i think there's more of a people are sort of realizing they can't rely on synthetics and they need to you know look for alternatives this isn't the be end and end all of it you've got to 
you know, having a breeding program, I think, has its merits to work in with um, other strategies in your IPM. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, John was telling me, John Berry, he was saying that um, it's been there for 20 years now and he, f- he feels that every year it's getting a little bit worse. So programs like this is, are really important uh, for the future. And I think I should um, just take this opportunity to let listeners know that in Australia, we currently have a varroa incursion. And so in Australia, we don't know a lot about varroa at the moment. And we're sort of, we're not sure if it's going to take off or whether we're going to achieve eradication. And so it's really important for us in Australia to be speaking with people like Ray so that we know how to deal with it when, when it sort of breaks out a, a little bit more. Yeah, that, that's so true. It was interesting because I, I talked at your Australian Congress, the fourth Congress, uh, just in June, was it? Yeah, and that was really interesting and because they- everyone, you know, everyone was pretty happy at the time and no yes, one knew that yes. we had a massive um, outbreak happening and no one knew at the time. It was a few weeks later no, that we sort of figured it out. Yes, yeah, and it was really ironic because uh, I think I was at the uh, previous Congress in Brisbane and there was an incursion there, but you guys just stomped it on the head and I was like, wow, that was really impressive. So when I heard the report, reports you know, back, I thought, oh, yeah. 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 Well, the, found the, it, it'll be contained and Yeah, that's right. Them, the previous incursions, um, so the one that happened in Brisbane, that wasn't Varroa Destructor. That was another type of varroa, and we'd had one in 2018 in Melbourne as well, but uh, we managed to get it while it was still on the ship, and it never yeah. made it never made it until the to the mainland at any point. So, but this one that we're currently experiencing is is quite a bit worse than those. So we're not really sure yeah. what's going to happen, and um, yeah. if it does break out, what would be your advice for Australians and in, in the way to deal with it? If if we if it gets to the point uh, where we realise okay it's gone we we just have to learn how to deal with it now or learn to live with it what would be your advice for us moving forward? Yeah, don't panic. Um, it's not the end of the world. Um, you can live with it. It's just more you know, costly with things. But you know, um, everyone you know straight away you, they use the synthetics drugs and everything worked uh, my advice would be do always monitor to get an idea on you can't monitor all your hives especially commercial guys you know uh, even if it's just four to eight hives per apiary just to see what your levels are all the time and if there needs to be a bit of coordination you know um, I've also with my um, with all my work with the VSH and I'm monitoring all the time monitoring tells you a story like it's if you're using like I use organics and and my um, breeding program and I can see like if if for example I'm very very we're very densely populated where I am in mid Canterbury we're uh, the biggest seed um, area in, in New Zealand and so therefore there's a lot of hives around for pollination so I'm conscious of what's going on around me and the other beekeepers outfits so when I'm monitoring like if I have a low level and 
then two or three weeks later I go back, say I've got two two mites out of 300 bees, and this has happened to me, and I go back and two weeks, three weeks later I've got 26 to 50 mites per 300, then I know that it is impossible for your mite population growth to expand that quickly. It means that I've been mite bombed. I've had, I've had uh, my bees have been reinfested with varroa from around my area. So I'll ring my neighbours and I'll go be telling them, well, you know, how are your mite levels? But everybody doesn't communicate enough and they're like, oh, they get on the defensive or they all know that I'm, I have, you know, I need a certain amount of varroa for my breeding programme. So, oh, yeah, right, good old Ray, she's, you know, she's spreading the varroa. But, you know, it wasn't, I don't want to point fingers or anything. I just wanted my neighbours to know what's going on because then if I've got high levels and I also tell them, look, you're in this area, just be aware, you know, I'm treating now, but they they have got a bit high. So what it's telling you, like if if I've got low levels and and all of a sudden have high, I've been mite bombed. So what I'm trying to promote now is a mite monitoring app so if everybody used it, they could use it individually and if everybody, or collectively. So if I've got uh, low levels and then I put my levels in and I get a ping record that everyone around me is low, sweet. If I'm low and everyone's around me, there's a couple of people high, then I know, well, okay, I've got to be more diligent. Maybe I'll have to treat again. If we're all high, well, we know that there's uh, um, something going on in the area so we can work around it and we can also look at what treatments we're all using and maybe there is becoming some resistance you know you need data to make informed decisions Mm. and also like if I'm high and everyone else is low then I know it's my management problem you know have I left the treatments did I not store them correctly or did I not use them correctly or you know were they not placed in the right places the um the hive so i think it's really important for and it's really hard one for everyone you know hopefully in your own regions you know sort of work together collect more collectively um hopefully we do learn to do that now they want you know a lot of people are calling for um treating at the same time which would be convenient but then i'm finding with my breeding program uh, the guys that I'm working with, we can actually treat just slightly later to everybody so we don't have to have treatments in the hive when they're still doing the honey. You, know, you still have to treat when you've, if you're breeding for VSH, but you can maybe extend them. But you actually have to monitor your hives to make those informed decisions. You know, it it's, it's creates a little bit more work, but I actually think it makes beekeeping more interesting and look at your alternatives you know use your synthetics when you need to there's nothing wrong with it but just be wary that yes mites can get resistance to them or you know they sometimes there might be some issue with them you know have have a few things in your in your uh, toolbox basically look at the alternatives support your queen breeders ask your queen breeders you know what what are, what are they doing what sort of quality controls do they have on their queens and things like that so yeah just communicate and 
That's really and help interesting. Each other, basically. Yeah, really interesting. What What's the name of that app that you were talking about, Ray? Oh, we <laughs> it's going to be the Mite Monitoring app. Um, we're still going for funding to bring it together. Uh, luckily, Future Bees really like the idea of it, so they're helping me coming. So. Uh, but it is based a little bit on the Be Informed Partnerships. They have a Might Check app. So Google that. And that's, it was funny because when um, a local, another Mark, Martin Lars here from Midlands Apiaries, we sort of got together and we were both sort of following what was happening in America. We'd, we've sort of come up with our idea of an app. And then we saw that they were doing one. But theirs is more once a year. Uh, whoever's involved in it, put their is in it. Uh, we we wanting it more for, more hands-on for the beekeeper. A lot of the beekeepers, or the bigger guys, they have, um, you know, hive apps and everything and that they can now put their mite monitoring um, levels into, but we would like to design something that actually um, can be collaborated with those so then we can get some, you know, what's going on regionally because also too because there's a lot of amazing research um, coming out and what I'm saying to researchers too like if they don't have a baseline of what the mite levels are around New Zealand how do they know you know it's all very well proving something in the lab look at the VSH all very well doing that that's amazing but heck help the commercial guys use it you know, it's it's really labour intense. You know, I'm forever looking. You know, I've you know, hopefully I'm coming up with some cunning plans to simplify it in the future. But um, you need a baseline. You know, how do I know my VSH is working? You know, how do you know the commercial beekeepers? You know, it's, it's I'm always wary that you know uh, queen breeders are going to start going. You know, oh, I breed for resistance. You know, I get a little bit nervous about that or making any claims myself. I'd rather somebody have a mite monitoring app so they can actually prove you know, what is happening mm. sort of thing. And research is like there's different things being researched at the moment that, yeah, mm. they need to have a baseline, basically. Mm. So apparently... I get very excited when I talk about it. <laughs> mm. No, absolutely. It's fantastic. Apparently there's a technology that allows you to check instantaneously for VSH, um, something to do with chopping one of the, a part of the, the wing off a, off a bee, and uh, you can test that way. Is that right? Yeah, this uh, snippet. Um, yeah, now VSH is very complicated because it's varroa-sensitive hygiene. So the bees actually, they go they sense the varroa in it, and then they hygienically remove it. So VSH is deemed to be more than one trait. So the snippets, they actually, uh, from what I, I know, uh, they, they are for the hygiene. So not all, not all, um, all VSH bees are hygienic, but not all hygienic bees are VSH because... It's been really exciting, actually, the whole my whole journey here. Because when when I first started uh, with the VSH, it was always believed that the varroa fed off the hemolymph, the blood of the bee. And it's only been in the last two years, I think it is. Uh, is it what's his name, Sammy? Oh, I've forgotten the wee guy's name. Um, Sammy Ramsey, I think it is. He discovered that the varroa lives off 
the fatty body fats of the varroa. So then, and also they didn't know whether the bees were, sen- were sensing that the larva, larvae was in distress or whether they were sensing something the mites were giving off. So Fanny Monet has just discovered last year that it was actually uh, the compounds, the, the varroa, the adult varroa actually mimic the pheromones of the larvae, but the newly born varroa are too small to, and they give off VPS compounds, vapor something, compounds. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm a layman, I'm not a scientist, and I, can, I find it hard to retain the technical terms, but they give off a VPS the compounds, and it's specific, VSHBs specifically detect that, so they uncap that um, that cell. So, uh, yeah, everything's just slowly evolving to find out you know, what we what they're finding, basically. Mm. Mm. So, do you use that the technology, the the snippet technology? Um, I have Plant and Food did a survey, and they found my bees were positive, mm-hmm. which was good. So they said that was. It was good. And I think some of the, yeah, I won't quote James, but I think, yeah, he was really, but we haven't actually followed that up. I've sort of carried on um, because it's not VSH specific, but okay. it is an indicator. Yeah. Yeah. And would you so recommend I'm more it? Excited, pardon? Sorry, would you recommend that as a good way of monitoring the, that those genes? Uh, not as yet. I don't think there's enough known. So they need to do more on it. Um, I'm hoping, uh, yeah, the more I look at it, the more research needs to be done. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, it's a stepping stone. It's like uh, the v, discovering the VPS compounds. You know, now, you know, can you spray uh, that compound onto, onto some cells to see whether the, the bees will uncap? Now, that... That would be exciting. Um, yeah, so that's why I, I think whatever happens in the science world, uh, because you have to phenotype at the moment for the VSH, I think you're always going to have to do a certain amount of it because genotyping it has proven to be a little bit difficult and then you'd still want to, you'd still want to maintain that that's actually correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause sometimes I think, oh yeah, we'll find we'll find the best, you know, we'll find another cure, and I don't have to do this because every time I keep used to keep. Well, Bob Dunk is retired now, but I I remember they'll discover something, and I'll I'll write to him and go, oh, does that mean I can give up, you know, give up all this laborious work now? And he's like, no, no, keep on counting. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, but yeah. So um, if yeah, it's we... really interesting. Yeah, that does sound really interesting. So, if you were to open up the hive of a really good VSH queen, what would you typically see? Oh, just a normal hive, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. Um, there was always a. There was always a. Yeah, it's just perfectly normal. Um, like the uh, the ones that I've just checked this first round. They're just amazing. They're humming with bees and um, brood. The brood density is just like I'm marking, scoring at four because 
there's high, you don't notice any um, spotty brood or anything. It's I think because once uh, they you know, once they're on top of the varroa and they they don't have they they just keep it at very low levels so that they just do it as they need it. You know, you don't get spotty brood or anything. Just a normal productive hive. When I first started it, I went to um, America and did an instrumental course with Sue Kobe. Gosh, what year was that? That was 2012. And I spent three months over there working with a friend of hers uh, who was a queen breeder. He was a you know, smaller queen breeder, but um, I talked to different ones, him and that about it, and they were like, oh, yeah, VSH queens, they don't produce any honey. And I'm like... Well, what are you basing that on? And it was, you know, it was just, it's just, you get that everywhere, don't you? You know, bee, beekeepers get their own ideas. And I'll be like, oh, God, that's not good for business if I go back home and <laughs> tell anybody I'm going to do this eight and they're not producers. And, and even here, there was, I think, you know, rumours like that got around. They're, oh, well, they're not good producers. And I'll be like, well, they're not basing, they're just, it's all hearsay. So, um, yeah, so you, you don't get the you can breed it into honey production, and it's they've done a lot of re, more research about that uh, now as well. So yeah, if you say you don't see any amazing bees with halos on mm-hmm. <laughs> flying around or anything, but yeah. So is it possible yeah. if it's a if it's a perfect or what the best you've seen VSH queen? Do you still have to treat that hive? Well. I do, uh, because I'm like in a densely populated area. Because I'm finding very because at the very start I'd only started with one. I found one, so I always do um, an organic treatment every autumn. Uh, I do do mite levels. They do a lot of them always maintain sort of under the threshold of three or zero but I just do because I don't know I haven't I know Bob Dunker at uh, Baton Rouge and everything they don't anymore but I don't have enough I haven't built up enough to give that a test mm-hmm. if you know what I mean mm. just yeah I, I just and especially in the autumn because you've got a lot I believe I believe you still you will have to treat at least once a year if I can build it up or and or rely on two look at the moment the guys uh they can't just rely on their two or spring and autumn treatments. The guys that are getting my queens around me here they are uh but we I'm not gonna put any claims up yet you know um Yeah, I would like to think I could get to a stage that you don't. But you see, you got to remember the ones overseas. They've all been, they've all been, sorry, they're all able to um, import bees from you know proven VSH. You know, like uh, where did they? Bob Dunker, Baton Rouge started with the VSH resistant bees from Africa. So. Yeah, we can't here. We're starting just with our trying to find it in our stock. Mm. So yeah, so to answer to your question, I really don't know. And actually, I'm happy if they you just have to treat once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. And so, how are you maintaining the genes within your apiary? Well, I'm doing limited 
instrumental insemination. Uh, my, I've got a bit of a pilot study going on to work out whether from my highest VSH daughters, whether I can um, breed it. Whether if I was a, say I was a, yeah, I'm trying to work out whether I can build it and breed it up without instrumental insemination. Now I know Barchin at Aristas, he tells me I won't be able to, or have to do single drone inseminations and everything. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to come up with how how can it work in the field. Right. So I do a little bit of instrumental insemination. I don't really have any isolated areas as such here. And my whole aim was when I did move here, because we tried up in Nelson, even on Mercury Island, the logistics of doing closed population. It's just like you've got to keep them fed. You've got to keep them, you know, like they they still need to be productive. Uh, commercial guys need to still make a living out of their hives. They can't. They mm-hmm. can't be researchers all yeah. their lives. Yeah. They have to live with it. Yeah, and and even we were we were talking about Brother Adam earlier, and when he was um, doing mm. when he had his mating station there on Dartmoor over in England, they they needed to be quite well looked after the whole time because there wasn't anything to for them to eat most of the year. So you, yes. you do have to put a yes. lot of effort into the isolation mating of bees, yep. whether it be an island or an isolated area. So there's there's a lot of effort there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I know Bartram was talking, oh, you can take your, your coastal drones up to the inlands because there won't be any drones there. And it's like, it's still, yeah, everything's still open. I actually, one thing I did love when I was, t- oh, the third congress that I was in Australia and the and the queen breeder was telling me that he had oh no you only heard his presentation he had a train so he'd keep his is it Joe, Joe his Horner? Drones tra- yes yeah and he keeps the drones in, the, in his hives is it and they come out on the train just at dusk and he releases is it that right it releases the drones and the virgins at the same time it's honestly the most amazing thing i've seen it personally it's it's really cool oh have you yeah I... i've spent some time with joe horner and it's really amazing what he's done there it's it's really cool I hope, I hope you get to see it one day oh look yeah yeah i was i was really that's probably one of my you know memorable thinking well wow if i'm gonna do it <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. I can't believe no one else around the world has done it. it he's got a, he's got an incredible system, and you can read all about it. Um, some universities have studied it, so you can read all about it. And it's just it's it's amazing what he's done. And I think that if we do get Varroa here, that Joe will will be really good at at dealing with it. I mean, if it if it establishes itself. So yes. he's, pro- he's yeah, probably yeah, our yeah, best yeah. hope at the moment. I'd say yes. Yeah, I. Um, I think um, you guys do have some good. Oh no, is he the only queen breeder? No, you must have more because I'm dealing with um, the Australian Queen Breeding Association. So yeah, uh, we have quite a few queen breeders. But Joe is he's so his lines he he supplies breeder queens to a lot of people. So. He's not the only one. We have some people who do some island mating and things up in Queensland, but quite a few people around Australia, especially in the eastern part of Australia, use his gene lines. And he's he's a bit like you. He he records everything. 
and so he, he's he's taking a lot of data and um, he knows a lot about what's going on with these bees and and so a lot of people around Australia rely on that data as well. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, data's really important. Mm. Data. But mind you, I, um, I still, everything's still on spreadsheets and things, but um, hopefully I can move with the time soon. Mm. But, yeah. yeah. So um, can you tell us about how we can find out more about your program? Uh, how, do we, how do we find you online? I'm uh, w breeding uh, w dot breeding oh breeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a few articles that I've written for the New Zealand Beekeeping Magazine. I'm a little bit slack of keeping it up to date, but there is a little bit of information about mite monitoring and and the VSH program. But yeah, that's or anyone's free to. Uh, you can contact me via that website if anybody's interested Mm. oh well definitely we're interested Um, i think especially over the next few years if it if this my problem breaks out in australia then um, a lot of us will be looking at that research or looking at the things that you're doing and me in particular i'll be i'll be really interested to get involved in the vsh and as john berry said we probably have it here in australia already and because we're not going to be bringing queens in there are a few people who are bringing in some some drones for the purpose of this but apparently according to john berry he thinks that we would have the vsh trade here already so i think we'll be looking forward to finding that and uh and 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 sort of building up a program that way if varroa breaks out which hopefully it doesn't yeah yeah because as yeah it's an additive trait so yeah, once you've got the varroa, it will come, it will express itself. And you've got to think, like I always think, um, I was always against um, genetically engineering anything. Or, uh, But then when I think, I think about it, well, the bees would probably eventually evolve to having some sort of a resistance. And I'd like to think I'm just speeding it up a little bit and hopefully maintaining the traits, the desirable traits, because you've got to look... Uh, the bees are so domesticated now because of all our breeding that we do with them that, yeah, mm. we're just building it up a little bit faster. Mm. Well, I'm interested to hear how everything goes with your app and, and with your um, the technology yeah. that you're developing. And I think we'll leave it there, Ray. Thanks so much for um, for having a chat today. I know it's quite early there, so uh, thanks, for, thanks for having a chat to me um, and I uh, hope that we can have a chat again soon. Oh, look, yeah, thank you for taking such an interest. It's been my pleasure. All right, well, I'll, I'll say goodbye now, and, um, yeah, have a great day. Okay, same to you. Thanks right. for calling. Thanks, Ray. Bye. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that episode today with Ray Butler over there in New Zealand. I've got a feeling that we're going to be having a lot to do with Ray in the next few years here in Australia. That's if we don't get this Varroa situation sorted out, and hopefully we do. If you want to get in touch with Ray, you can at besmartbreeding.co.nz. If you want to get in touch with me, you can at nixonbees.com.au. And until next time, thanks so much for tuning in.